As we move into God's word today, you may want to turn to the book of Nehemiah. We'll be a little bit all over the place there, but that is where our focus will be this morning. As I mentioned last week, our children are being dismissed. Thank you, Mary. And um, as we talked about Ezra last week, we're now moving into the next book of the Old Testament in Nehemiah. And so my first question for you this morning as we dip back a little bit into last week's thoughts, some is, how is it with your soul? I wonder if any pondered that question over this past week. What is the condition of things? Did you sense God bringing comfort or maybe correction or perhaps helping you even to shift some of your thinking on some matter in your life right now? Perhaps there was an assurance of his presence or just that reminder that he says he's always with us. He'll never leave us. So let's, let me encourage you, even if you didn't get there last week, to keep that question at the forefront of your time with God through the summer as we continue to meet with him and with one another. And as I said, we'll move on up to Nehemiah this week. And it's thought that likely Ezra wrote the book of Ezra and Nehemiah and probably First and Second Chronicles as well. Their paths overlap quite a bit, but today we'll give some focus to God's specific call to Nehemiah and how that might connect to how we're living as his people in 2022. A dozen or so years after Ezra first returned to Jerusalem, Nehemiah was serving as a royal official cupbearer in the court of King Artaxerxes in Susa, which was the capital then of the Persian Empire. And while he was serving this Persian king, he had received news that despite the return of thousands of Jewish exiles up to that point, Jerusalem's wall was still in ruins, and the city remained exposed to danger. Nehemiah's response to this news of this tragedy is really the subject of the whole book of Nehemiah. As we learned last week, Ezra led the second return of three groups of Jews that went back to Israel. Nehemiah led the third return of exiled Jews. As cupbearer to the king of Persia, he held an important administrative post in the government. When he received word that the people had already returned and were in distress, this really disturbed him. But he believed God's promise that when his people repent and return to him, he would restore their land. So kind of based on God's word, in summary, Nehemiah began a program of what we would call, like today, we'd call it community development among God's people. And But with the blessing and help of this pagan king, Nehemiah returned home to build the walls, rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. This was kind of a demonstration that even the secular world is subject to God when his people operate according to kingdom promises and authority. The wall was, of course, important because without one, the people of that community were open to intruders. They were left unprotected. So after the practical matter of rebuilding the walls took place, Nehemiah then gave focus, as Ezra had been doing, to the spiritual rebuild of the Israelites. He ensured that the people were reading God's law and that they understood it. So it was twofold. It was the physical rebuild of the wall, but it was also Nehemiah urging the people on to rebuild spiritually some of what we did last week in 
posing that question of how is it with your soul. It's a starting point for us to do that check internally. But as we read through the book of Nehemiah, and I would encourage you, if you haven't read it lately, to make your way through that in the next few weeks. He was a blend of prayer and action. And as we know, as his followers, prayer has to be a priority for us. Max Lucado teaches us a few things about prayer. None of this will be new to you, but it's a good review. Prayer makes us wait. We have to wait to act until we actually finish praying. Prayer forces us to leave the situation with God. Makes us wait. Prayer clears our vision. We know Southern California often has an overhanging weather problem in the mornings because of its coastal location until the sun burns through the morning fog. Well, prayer does that for us, too. When you first face a situation, it's sometimes very unclear, almost foggy. Well, prayer will help us to burn through that, and our vision will clear some as God helps us to see things through his eyes. It quiets our hearts. We cannot worry and pray at the same time. We're doing one or the other. Ever been there? Prayer makes us quiet. It replaces anxiety with a calm spirit. And lastly, he says, prayer activates our faith. After praying, we're more prone to trust God. And this is kind of a side effect when we don't pray. How petty and negative and critical we can become when we don't pray. So let's be mindful of that. Nehemiah provides this great study in leadership. In a mere 52 days, he led the people amid a lot of opposition to build these Jerusalem walls. He also called for the development of solid families and for the temple to be the center of life, for the people to live under the covenant promises of God, for them to be a righteous and just community. He was all about making wrong things right. A major secret of Nehemiah's success was he was faithful behind the scenes. He listened to God, but he was the same when no one was looking as he was before the people that he was leading. You need to remember it's not in the Russian hurry of activity or being able to say how busy we are and how involved we are that really gains the respect of the people around us. It's when we do what we do when we are alone. Someone once aptly penned, and we've all heard this before, but it bears repeating, character is what you are when nobody's looking. What was happening during Nehemiah's silent days? He tells us in verses, chapter 12, verse 2, he says, I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind. One would think that once he reached Jerusalem, he would have just jumped right in and got going. I mean, he was very distressed about these broken down walls. But rather, he did nothing for three days except to pray. He went before the Lord. I don't know if I could be still for three days with that looming project before me. When he got there, he really wasn't sure how God wanted him to proceed. 
And a portion of his prayer reads, God, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. He was determined to hear what God had to say. But as always, there were the naysayers. There was the opposition he came up against when Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem heard about Nehemiah's plans to move forward, we read in chapter 2. With this rebuilding, they mocked and despised him. But Nehemiah's reply was simple and straightforward. He said, the God of the heavens is the one who will grant us success. We, his servants, will start building. One of Tobias' comments, as he and many others sought to discourage Nehemiah, was even a fox could break down this wall. Well, one thing he was forgetting was God designed this wall. This rebuilding was God's plan. Nehemiah was used as the superintendent for this project, but it was all part of God's plan. And it reminds us of Jesus' words in Matthew. I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. The church, the gathering God's people, was always God's idea. And that needs to be enough to keep us coming, keep us working it, and following God's directives. And all its imperfections and disappointments, which we all contribute to, Jesus himself said, hell would not overpower it. I'm grateful for that reminder over and over, especially in these days, as we seek to rebuild what the church is to look like. Though we aren't being called like Nehemiah was to rebuild a wall of protection, perhaps we're being called to rebuild the reputation of the church. Maybe that's what God is calling us to. How do you think we're doing with that? Let's be reminded, too, as we look at these passages on the rebuilding of the temple and the protective wall, that with God, there's hope for a broken-down life, a broken-down family, marriage, even a broken-down country. With God in the equation, there's always hope for a rebuild. Giving focus again to the church, truth be told, we cannot change what CNN or ABC promotes or shares about the church or Christians. But we can begin right where we live, right where God has planted us in this world right now, to change or to alter the general sentiments about the church in today's world. We are the church. We all know that. And God has called each one of us for such a time as this to represent him in the world. None of us are here in this time by accident. Every neighbor, store clerk, doctor, nurse, or even distant family member, we have the chance to interact with. That's our moment, our opportunity to show them who Jesus is. In spite of what's being said these days about Christians, as we do what Steve Machia is calling us to, we talked about this some last week, practicing a preference for God, we are living out the gospel. Some of the reminders of scripture, 
Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Above all, love each other deeply, for love covers a multitude of sin. And Peter reminds us in this passage, it's God's will that you live honorable lives. And it should silence the ignorant talk of people who make foolish accusations against you. When we're actually practicing a preference for God, these are expressions of scripture from how we are to live. We don't have to wonder, oh, how do we do that? Where do we begin to rebuild this reputation? Or our version of the wall that God called Nehemiah to rebuild. Scripture's very clear to us. We know we're a regular target of criticism as the church, but some of the accusations, sadly, are not erroneous, nor are a lot of them undeserved. We've all read the stories, heard of the Christian leaders that have fallen, And as Pastor Jeff pointed out a few weeks ago, we are so often known for what we are against and not what we are for. And not for the love and grace we are called to be dispensers of, as Jesus has been so faithfully to us. We are often known, that is the church at large, for not having a gracious spirit. One of the things I always do when I go to Keystone and I meet new um, residents there, which is pretty frequent, is I ask them about their spiritual journey. You know, they've ever been to church, they have a relationship with God, and so on. And so often I hear church stories where I feel like I have to kind of rebuild with them. We are often not known for our giving spirits, and we're often not known for seeking to love the ones who are very different from us. And frankly, people today, people are tired. People are so worn out from day-to-day living, especially after these last few years. If there's even a hint that church would be another stressful place or a place of harsh judgment, they'll be quick to say, uh, not interested. So as we're in this rebuilding stage of sorts, following the ups and downs and losses of these last few years, what is God saying to you and me about the church? Last week we talked about rebuilding our souls, as we've said, the rebuild of the church begins with the individuals in the church. We all know that we are the church, 5 St. Lawrence Street's our location, but we are the church. And so whatever people know about Community Chapel is because of you and me. So as his people, it's a key time in the life of the church to ask ourselves, how am I looking to God for his vision and direction? We cannot afford any longer to settle for the status quo. As I mentioned last week, your board and staff continue to meet this summer to pray together. And in doing so, we're confident God will show us the way and what his next best step is, because the work of the church must go on. But we are in a whole different place than we were a decade ago, even a few years ago. So it does call for a different approach, a different set of tools maybe. And so we're on our knees trying to figure that out. So I would ask that you would join us through these summer months as you pray. Pray for your church leaders. 
When Nehemiah came up against the opposition and discouragement over and over, he did two things. He prayed and he persisted. He talked to God openly and frankly about how he was feeling. He didn't try to temper his prayers and make them sound holy. He was just blunt, honest, as the psalmist calls us to in Psalm 62. Pour out your hearts to God. What is it you're feeling? What is it you're questioning? What are you struggling with in your own faith journey? Say it to God. He can handle that. And part of our caring for our souls and even expressing care for his church is being that level of honesty with God. Let's be people that are found pouring out their hearts before God. Nehemiah fought his battles through prayer. It took a lot of restraint on Nehemiah's part to not just retaliate or get into debates or arguments with his opponents. Just as David said before he slung the stone that killed Goliath when he was being mocked, and people were like, really? What is the Lord going to do with him? His response was, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. So even as we find ourselves living in this place where the church is suspect in a lot of people's minds, where the general population really has little regard or sees little use for the church in their lives, even as we're dismissed by the world, we know we have what is needed in Jesus. We have the very thing that this chaotic, gone mad world needs. In this time of indescribable madness, where anger and rage rule, where day after day we are called to process yet another divisive issue or grieve over another mass shooting, we have the hope of the gospel. We know the grace and love of Jesus. So it's imperative we let God repair our souls so that we can rebuild, so we can be the hospital that is ready to take those in who are frantically looking for healing, looking for purpose and meaning, or just trying to survive. Again, we need to be practicing that preference for God. Are we doing so when we speak, when we post on social media, when we work with the difficult boss or the marriage that isn't going well or the wayward child? Are we practicing a preference for God's way? Are we persisting in prayer as Nehemiah did so faithfully? Just as Ezra knew his success was because of God's gracious hand on him, God's gracious hand rests on us when we choose his way, no matter what odds we're up against, no matter how discouraged our soul might be. And remember, anytime we commit to drawing closer to God or to following his lead in our church, the enemy will go to work. The spiritual battle of dark versus light remains. So we draw together and lean into God, who reminds us the battle does not belong to us, and he will fight for us. This is our time, church. And the work begins with us. All of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus are the answer, and all of us play a part in answering this call as post-pandemic people in a world lost with pain and those searching for meaning and purpose all around us. This is our moment to show them who Jesus really is. Not our time to jump in on the political or even religious debates of the day. Jesus never argued his way into proving points. Scott Saul said this week, what if Christians became more widely known for engaging in thoughtful, enriching, 
challenging and honoring public conversations about God, humanity, and life. What a difference this could make in our congregation, in our communities. And Paul reminds us of this in his letter, his second letter to Timothy, when he says, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servants must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents, opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. And let's remember the will of God comes out of community. Paul's letters were read in community. And this is more important now than ever because we have the voice of the world before us all of the time. With the advances of technology in this last generation, there's hardly a time when the voices of the world are not being imposed on us. So it's all the more important that we be found in community with other, other believers, not to ex escape the world, not to be exclusive, but rather to affirm and reaffirm what we know is truth from scripture and to cheer each other on in the hard places of life, practicing a preference for God together in all areas of life. And our gathering together is not an option. It's a part of our very calling as his followers. In a podcast I listened to this week, Indy Stanley said, we gather physically with other believers to remind ourselves corporately that there's more to this life than we can see. We need to be reminded we're not alone in our battles and we're not the only ones in a battle. Life is not perfect, he says, but God is love. Life is not lovely all the time. Anyone agree? Life is not lovely all the time. <clears throat> but God is love and it is in gathering and exchanging stories with one another as we all experience difficulties, we help one another grow in our confidence in God. It's a critical part of the Christian journey. He says the resurrection that is foundational to our faith, it is not just a Bible story. It's a daily reminder to you and I that God loves us and he is for us. He has not abandoned me and you. Even when life is not good in the very darkest of days, this remains true. For a reminder of this, read through the book of Acts. We clearly see how Paul clings to the truth of the resurrection all through his missionary journey in the book of Acts, which were filled with hardship, persecution, beatings, imprisonment, and the list goes on. Jesus calls us to come to him when we are weary, and part of coming to him is us coming together. Appreciate his words. So lastly, I'll read this story from Michael Glenn. He wrote this blog a few weeks back, and we, I think we shared it with our leadership team here as well, but it's called Wagon Trains and the Local Church. Glenn does a great job of making the analogy of just how believers, as believers, we're like the people of the wagon train days and just how essential it is we travel together. He says, if you go to St. Louis, you can see a historical marker commemorating the spot where the wagon trains gathered to begin their trip toward the golden promise of California. Thousands of people would meet in Missouri, form a train of wagons, and point their oxen and mule westward. Get this, five months later, if things went well, they would arrive in California. Five months. That makes our flight delays in these days seem like nothing. The wagon trains would average about two miles an hour, 
and on good days, they'd cover about 20 miles a day. If the weather was good and the wagon train could avoid viral infections, bandits, starvation, wild animals, and the unforeseen dangers, they would arrive safely in California five or six months later. He says, sorry, but I would have lost my mind going that slow. I probably would have started out promising to be a good team member, but after a few days of waiting for someone to catch up, fix a broken wagon wheel, or hear another argument over the best way to go, no GPS back then, so they were kind of winging it, I would have given up, he says, and gone on by myself, which means I would not have made it at all. There's a word, he says, for those who tried this dangerous and long journey by themselves, dead. People who traveled west on their own usually did not get very far. Disease, accidents, hungry predators, and other moments with bad outcomes were waiting for the unsuspecting traveler. The challenge wasn't making it in the best time, but it was making it alive. He says, I think about this often as the pastor of a local church. A local church, he says, is a lot like a wagon train. We are slow and bumbling on the trip. Someone is always getting lost, and something is always breaking. We're constantly having to stop so someone can rest or get over an injury or illness. And as always, we'll stop for a days to have a long discussion to make sure everyone agrees we still want to go where we're going and we take the best route there. He says, it's so frustrating, so infuriating. You almost want to walk off and just follow Jesus all by yourself. But he says, the truth is, we need each other. Life is too hard to live solo. Sooner or later, life will ambush all of us. He says, the economy will turn south and businesses you thought would never close do. We could all add to that list of life happenings that ambush us, a weakening marriage, a wayward child, overwhelming unplanned for expenses, situation after situation that we just do not know what to do with. Depression, anxiety, physical ailments, just add to the list. Life will confuse and confound you, Glenn says, and before you know it, you're the one who gets lost. Remember we talked last week about the slow drift from Jesus. No one plans for it. It's not ever on our agenda, but the battles of life done solo is one of the major causes for people to crash and burn. Remembering God calls us to community, to a faithful, regular gathering together in order to survive. So Glenn goes on to say, the person you least expect to know anything sees the one thing everyone else is missing and finds a way forward. For all their follies, these people will be angels sent from God to you. He says, if you lose something, you have an extra one. If something breaks, one of those in the group will know how to fix it. Through it all, someone will finally figure out the path to get you where you want to go. And when the bad guys over the horizon come over the horizon, they'll all be there to circle up around you, just like that wall that Nehemiah was building around Jerusalem and the temple. He says, you know, I've been a part of local churches all my life, not going to tell me anything I don't know about them. Hypocrites, church is full of them. But he says, you know, the same grace that lets them in, let you and me in too. Heroes, the church is full of them. Whether you find the hypocrites or the heroes depends on who you're looking for. Yes, the church is frustrating, even maddening. But he says there's only one thing worse, trying to go it alone. At times, he says, maybe your church will slow you down or not go the way you want. 
but you'll all get there together. Finally, it may take a little longer. Okay, a lot longer, he says, but you'll get there. And after all, he says, getting there is all that matters. It's the whole point of the trip. We are made for community. We're made for relationships. So let's be together as often as we can so that we can grow together, improve together, be a force, a strong force in this very lost and chaotic world. Friends, as I said, we have the answer in Jesus. He's it. If we get lost, we have each other to hang on to. When you can't pray, others can pray for you. But in order for the world to see us and to be busy as Nehemiah was in rebuilding and bringing people to restoration, we must be too. As a worship team comes now, let me close with these words of one of Nehemiah's prayers early in the book on chapter 1. He says, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. May it be so for us in these days. Amen.